Let's take our Bibles and let's turn to Genesis 4. And while you're turning to Genesis 4, I want to recap real quick. Obviously, a lot of people missed last week. (laughs) But guilt is a poor motivator. So, uh, we'll move forward with this. We're going over dispensations. You say, why why does the screen say the church and we're covering something different? Well, we are, but we're not. In order to get a full understanding of the church, the church is something that takes place Not just in history, but God has a specific, well-crafted, intentional plan for all of us as a body. So often people say, well, God has a wonderful plan for your life. I would agree, but I would also back that up very quickly in saying that God's wonderful plan for your life is never separated from the local church. Never. There is no other entity at this time in history that God has put forward for Christians to be united to. In fact, when you become a believer in Christ, you are automatically part of his body. There's the universal body of Christ, which is made up of all believers, and there is the local church of which God is orchestrating to be a representation of his body to the lost and dying world around it. It's not a building, it's a people. So if that's set in some place in history, we have to understand God's plan for history around it so that we understand why the role we play right now is so significant and why the idea of the pew-sitter church is absolutely pungent to God's nostrils. Is that a graphic enough description there? Good. So let's run over this real quick and see. The word dispensation, just in case you didn't get this down. Give you a chance to write some of it. Again, if you miss it, go to gbcportage.com. Up at the top right-hand side, click sermons. Mitch will have all the slides on there for you to go through to take a look in case you missed anything. A dispensation, it's the Greek word oikonomia. That may sound familiar like our English word economy. And it is how a stewardship society or existence is run by God. Oiko means house. Namas or nomia means law. The critical, or sorry, the central idea in the word dispensation is that of a managing or administering the affairs of a household. Creation is God's household. He is the one who is the master designer, the orchestrator of all of time, history, existence, creation. I mean, think about it. We're created the way that we are, if for no other reason than the fact that God wanted it that way. That's just how supreme and awesome he is. And we talk about the creator-creature distinction. He is in charge, not us. It's not a level playing field. All of creation and history is subservient to him. Now, no one wants to live like that. Everybody wants to live in rebellion to him. And this is where we find friction. And if we don't understand dispensations, we won't understand what's going on with the friction of what rebellion institutes in line with God. So, Next slide, please. This is a refresher from last week. There are four phases to every dispensation. Now, if you have your chart, you're going to see this in just a couple of words listed in the boxes across the top. But let's go through and make sure that we understand them. Number one, God is going to issue a requirement to the human race. 
There is something that God says, this needs to happen. This is how it needs to go. This is what I'm putting in place. Here are the boundaries. Here's here's how you're to handle life and existence. The second part of that is that people always fail in upholding God's requirements. And here's the interesting thing. It's not necessarily that they're too hard, but it's just that I'm so dumb. Let's be honest. I am so bent on doing what I want to do rather than what God would have me to do that it's frightening sometimes. So we always, we do this, don't we? We're sitting in something and you hear about Peter because he's always our favorite guy to pick on. Peter and Thomas. Well, if I would have been there and they said Jesus raised, I would have believed. Well, why is Peter mouthing off all the time? And we all, we are the Monday morning quarterback for those two guys. Let me let you in on a secret. That's you. You don't know it. But if you and I were in that situation, we would probably respond the same way. It's easy to look back and say, he should have done better. He should have tried harder. That's what I say to that. Okay? So we always are going to fail in some way. Because failure is in a constitution of sin, God's required it. We failed to live up to it. God has to punish it. That's number three. God has to punish that failure in some way. There's a judgment that takes place. But the beautiful thing about God, number four, is that there is grace on the other side of that. Now, my Kentucky brother is not here this Sunday. But understand, on the other side, exactly, on the other side of God's judgment... On our complete and absolute failure, there is grace waiting on the other side for us. Thank you. That's excellent. Yeah. Do we have a hallelujah one? You have one of those? I love it. That's great. That's great. So this is how a dispensation unfolds. There are seven dispensations. Let's put them up there. You can write them down real quick if you want to, but we're going through each one of them. The first one that you need to list down there is innocence. Innocence is what we covered last week. Innocence is what we covered last week. Zach, let me see your paper real quick. Zach has such pretty handwriting. So what is the time period for innocence? Well, it's Genesis 1 and 2. Just to give you the fill-in from last week. Genesis 1 and 2. Creation has been created, and everything is existing free of sin and free of flaw. Adam and Eve are able to walk in perfect harmony with God. God's requirement is only one thing. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's it. That's the only thing they couldn't do. The next one is, they failed. How'd they fail? They ate of the tree. And how did God judge them? Well, God had to curse them, right? The serpent got cursed. Eve got cursed. Adam got cursed. And then he had to evict them out of the garden. What was his grace? Do we remember? What is it? He didn't kill them. Oh gosh, that's harsh. Stop for a second. How many sins merit death? One. Yeah, notice I don't need two sins to deserve to die. All I need is one. Isn't that interesting? And you know it got worse. Adam, have you eaten from the tree that told you not to? Well, she gave me that apple. So not only is he getting it from here, he's getting it from here. Isn't that funny to anybody? My wife's out of town. I think that's hilarious. All right, moving on. 
<laughs> Edit that out. Okay. So today we're going to start dealing with the second dispensation. And here's the reason why, because things have changed. Before they ate of the tree, God is dealing with perfect beings. He's dealing with people who are not tainted by anything. They just have a wide-eyed devotion of wanting to walk and spend time with God, enjoy the creation around them. Nothing is hard or difficult at that time. But as soon as sin entered the picture, Adam and Eve were no longer innocent. Now, God is dealing with sinners. And so the dispensation has to change. Now, what was the name of the tree they ate from? The knowledge of good and evil. That's not just some kind of strange designation to know what it is. Beforehand, they didn't need to know what evil was. They could have been completely, like little children, oblivious of any of that. They didn't need the knowledge of it. But now that that's come in, they now have a conscience. They now have a conscience of which will govern them because now they know good and evil. In fact, conscience, you break that word down. C-O-N means with. And what does science mean? Knowledge. It means now they are with knowledge. They know right and wrong. So now, let's look at the dispensation of conscience. Chapter 4 of Genesis. Let's start in verse 1 here. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. And again she gave birth to his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground, and Abel on his part also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. Now, an interesting question I would come to the table and ask is, is who in the world instituted offerings? Because we don't see that in the text. But obviously they're doing it. Notice it's a point of worship. And if this ends up being something that sets a prototype for what comes later in the law, then maybe they were there to sacrifice for sin. Now, what blows my mind is the scholars have debated forever. Well, how come God didn't like Cain's offering? You know the answer to this. Why? Well, his heart wasn't pure. That's probably behind it. There was no shedding of blood. See, the interesting thing about the fact that Adam and Eve didn't die, why was that? Because the Lord killed two animals and skinned them and clothed them. Their coverings wouldn't do. Fig leaves weren't making it. They needed to be covered in the way that the Lord designated with the current situation that they were in. And so the Lord sheds the blood of two animals who didn't do wrong in place of Adam and Eve who should have died. Everybody see substitutionary atonement. Everybody see that? And then he covers them so they're now acceptable in his sight. That's the idea. Obviously, this set a precedence. Pumpkins don't bleed. Neither does asparagus. So now we got a problem. And notice that the Lord wouldn't necessarily be upset with Cain if it wasn't clearly communicated of what was expected. 
Everybody see that from this? Now, here is where the conscience comes into play. Look in the middle of that verse. It says here, So Cain became very what? Angry. Uh-oh, emotions. They're our friends, aren't they? Notice, became very angry, and his countenance fell. Or, put it this way, you could see it on his face. Now here's what I love about God. God doesn't come in and say, you did wrong, snaps his neck, he's done. Doesn't happen. Look how God handles this. Imagine a father pleading with a child. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Isn't that interesting? Explain to me. Explain to me why you are like this. He says after that, why is your countenance fallen? And then verse 7, he states the standard. If you do well, which implies that you know what it is to do well and to not do well, yes? So notice that. He's leading him in a direction of correction for his betterment. He's giving him an open door. Well, I wouldn't have committed that sin if I had an open door. Hold on a second, because the barn doors never got wider than the Lord sitting down with somebody and walking them through this process and pointing them in a direction, okay? So let's see this for everything that it is. If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? Do you know what that means? Think about what he's saying. You're upset. You're angry about this. Your face is down about this. But if you wouldn't just obey the Lord, wouldn't you find joy? If you would just abide by the dispensation that you're in, knowing good and evil and choosing to do good when you're faced with those two options, wouldn't it not be great? Let me ask you, would it? Would it be good for you? I would hope so. I would hope. That we would not walk out of here like Cain saying, you know what, bad things are still okay. That's the way the world thinks. That's not the way that people who understand the divine scriptures act. Come on. So notice, your countenance. Will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, now here's what I love about it. He lets him know. Here's the bear trap that's sitting out in front of you. If you step in this direction... Here's what's going to happen. If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Now, if we don't see personal responsibility radiating off of these seven verses, I don't know where else you're going to be able to see it in the Bible. This is important to understand. Adam was... Personally responsible for not eating of that tree. But when he failed, and now there is an understanding of what is right and what is wrong before every human being. This is a dispensation, or the the, the, the principle of this dispensation of having a conscience of knowing right and wrong. It doesn't go away just because a new dispensation comes on board. Does that make sense? The, the idea of us having a conscience is something that keeps continuing. In fact, let me give you an example. If you want to write this down in your margin, that's fine. I've gone over the scripture with you guys before, but I think it is such a telling scripture. Uh, it's Romans chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. I don't have it on the board. Just listen. For it's not, uh, let me see here, 14 through 16. For when Gentiles who do not have the law 
do instinctively, and that word instinctively means by nature. When they do by nature the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves. In that they show that the work of the law is written on their heart, their conscience, ding, 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 ding. Everybody see that? Now this is Paul writing in Romans. Many years after this. Their conscience bearing witness, their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. In other words, when we stand before the Lord to give an account of our lives, one of the greatest measuring sticks of how we did and how we stewarded what he gave to us as Christians in the New Testament church age is going to be, did you listen to your conscience? Now, I know no one here has ever suppressed their conscience, have they? No? So we don't know anything about what that feels like, do we? What does that feel like? It's awful, isn't it? Everybody got that sick feeling in your stomach, right? No matter how much Pepto-Bismol you're down and it ain't going away. Shame! Shame! Stop for a second. Isn't the whole point of Jesus dying on the cross in our place to liberate us from guilt and shame? And yet when we are not abiding by the God-given conscience, pointing us in a direction of what is right and wrong, we are inviting the thing that we've been liberated from to ensnare us again. It almost makes you wonder why Satan's even here. I'm my own worst enemy. Good gravy. Anybody else hot? I'm getting hot up here. Where's my fan? Mitch, can you turn us down one notch? So if you turn there with me, turn back to Genesis. We are. Hallelujah. Okay. Turn back to Genesis. But this time, go to chapter 6. What happens in the situation with Cain and Abel? Does Cain listen to God? No, he kills his brother. He kills him. It's not like they were sitting at the dinner table and all of a sudden, you know, Abel reached over and gave him a wet willy or anything like that. It wasn't this brotherly struggle fighting thing. It's just the fact that Abel obeyed God. And because Cain didn't obey God, and because Abel, in his actions, was a beacon of righteousness in Cain's presence, Cain had to kill the light so that he didn't have to deal with it. Do you ever wonder why people in the media respond so harshly to Christians? It's light. Cockroaches hate light. They can't stand it. They run. They rebel. If there's enough of them, they attack. This shouldn't surprise us. John 7, 7, Jesus said, No, if they hate you, they hated me first. They hated me first. Why? Because he's light. It shouldn't surprise us, guys. What's amazing about Genesis 6, here is the divine declaration. We're going to look at verses 5 through 8 here. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now let me just share this with you personally. To me, this is one of the most frightening verses in all the Bible. Because God sees. God always sees. In fact, because we are a people that believe in the progressive revelation of Scripture, you start in Genesis and you learn more and more about God as you progress from book to book, going straight through because that is what we believe about the situation we would understand that god already knows everything to begin with yes but notice how it hits home here 
It's not just, well, he knows what I'm wearing or he knows what I'm thinking. He knows my heart. Now stop and think about where you are with God right now. This is important. Especially if you were someone that didn't confess sin and take advantage of what we did with 1 John 1, 9, Psalm 32, 1-5. through 5. If we're not willing to come to the Lord and confess sin, we didn't hurt anybody but ourselves. He still sees that. He knows that rebellious spirit. He can call it out. And what's amazing is, is if we try to argue with it, he's always right. He's the one who's always right. He's that guy, only in a perfect way. So let's read it again, and hopefully we'll get the weight of it here. I want everybody to understand this and think about God's assessment of the society, the culture at that time. Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent, my intentions, every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And here's the response. Pay attention to the emotion here. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. Now here's the interesting thing. If you don't have a conscience that understands right from wrong, verse 5 means nothing. Does everybody see that? God can sit here and say, well, they're evil, but they don't have the capacity to know right and wrong, and so therefore it doesn't really matter. That's not God's response. He doesn't just let this trail off like water off a duck's back. This is something that incites in him, get this, guys, regret. God actually regretted something. Well, God's perfect. He can't regret anything. Man, do we understand this? The Almighty, all-knowing, all-seeing, everywhere present, never changing, and in need of nothing God who created all things looks at the actions that people have committed, or let's say it this way, the stewardship responsibilities that were placed in their care to live according to understanding right and wrong. And the idea was, let's constantly violate the conscience that we now have from God in telling us what is acceptable, and let's only do evil all the time, every time, any time. God says, I'm sorry for this situation. That's how serious sin is. That's just how seriously he takes it. So notice verse 6, I'm sorry, verse 7. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. Here's your judgment. So if you're filling out your chart, Second dispensation is conscience. How long does it last? It lasts from Genesis, middle of Genesis 3, with the pronouncements of the judgments, because now they're sinners. Things have changed. All the way through 4, 5, into 6. And it's this pronouncement of judgment that takes place here. The requirement is live by your conscience. Good and evil. The failure is The heart of mankind just wants to do evil all the time. I can't get enough evil in my life. i got to do more. The judgment is, I'm going to blot out the evil. It's the flood. The flood is judgment. For any of you in here that are Sunday school teachers, or you've taught Sunday school before, and regardless of what curriculum you come to, 
you come to the flood, don't you? Everybody's got to do it. And you guys know how I feel about all those animals hanging their heads out of the ark, right? You know, they're just like, it's almost like, I don't know. They're those things at the car lots that, you know, the giraffes or whatever. Wow, this is amazing. You never see the carcasses floating on the water. You never see the real reason why God did that. You never see that it was, this is how much I hate sin. And it was a mark in the sand to show, this is intolerable. I am holy. And I've given you the ability to choose good. And when you had the ability of that choice, and I don't buy in this junk that people don't have choice. People have choice. But when you neglect that choice for good, and you pant after evil, there's nowhere left to go but destruction. What is the grace? Look at verse 8. But Noah found favor. And that word in Hebrew means grace. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. What is the grace here? Noah, his three sons, his wife, and their three wives. That's grace. Is God obligated to save anyone? No, he's really not. He's really not. You could sit here and you could say, well, we have the promise of the Savior from Genesis 3. He's got to come. So, okay, we'll, we'll take Noah. We'll let the line come through here. Did he have to take his wife? No. You think she would? Who said yes? That's a woman's heart right there. Please, God, take me too. Did he have to take his sons? Did he have to take his son's wives? Everybody see this? Man, God is gracious. You say, this is pretty serious. It is. And it's seriously gracious. You know what's interesting about the fact that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord? Grace is undeserved favor. But I almost wonder why Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Anybody know? Because he's a preacher of righteousness. Because when everybody else was going wrong and their hearts were corrupted, he was choosing good. He was actually upholding. He was the exception to the norm in the dispensation of conscience. 120 years. God looked favorably on that. God blessed him because of that. God responded to that. Sometimes I just don't feel like God's responding in my life. Let me ask you a question. Are you obeying your conscience and choosing good and responding in righteousness? That might be a good point for us to think about. So hopefully you've got that second line filled in in your chart. But here's the ultimate question we want to ask at the end of every one of these. Does the dispensation of conscience work to govern mankind? Does it work? No, it doesn't. When we're left up to ourselves, we'll choose evil. Not good. So notice that doesn't work. In fact, do me a favor. Look over at chapter 7 real quick, verse 23. Here's the judgment taking place. And the grace in the same verse. Thus he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, and they were blotted out from the earth. And only Noah was left together with those that were with him in the ark. The word blotted out there, interesting. It literally means they were erased. If you do a lot of reading, you may know the name Alfred Edersheim. He has a really good quote. He says, the Lord, sorry, the flood had destroyed sinners, but not sin. 
That's interesting. Even with a worldwide catastrophic flood, sin is still a problem. It's still an issue. And this is what moves you into the next dispensation, civil government. Number three is civil government. In chapter 9, verse 1, if you look over there, this is where we get the first uh, glimpse with Noah coming off of the ark. They have a time of sacrifice. And then God responds. 9-1, if you even want to write in the margin of your Bible, I've gone through and marked out the dispensations in my Bible. 9-1 is the beginning of the dispensation of civil government. Watch what happens here. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Everybody see that? First thing he says. Now, what is this similar to? Think with me. Adam and Eve, right? Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and what do you tell them there? Subdue it. Have dominion. Notice that's not here. Because that dominion was forfeited at the moment that sin came in the picture. That's why Satan is the ruler of this present age. Adam and Eve had the opportunity to be the rulers of earth. And because they wanted sin, they forfeited it. Now Satan wears that temporary crown. Jesus said so himself. Chapter 9, verse 1, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky with everything um, yeah, okay, with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand, they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. Everybody was was uh, vegetarian before this. Praise God for revival and deliverance in that. I, I give to all of you, as I gave every green plant, only you shall not eat flesh. Now pay attention to what he says here, because this if you're reading through the Bible at any time from beginning to end, here's a prominent thread that goes through this. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Life is in the blood. Always get that concept. That's important for you to know, especially when you're dealing with, why am I in Leviticus and this is going on? Because life is in the blood. That's what it's trying to teach us, okay? So the life of a person is in the blood of a person. That's a foundational thing. It says here, verse 5, Surely I will require your lifeblood from every beast, I will require it. And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For, here's the reason why, in the image of God he made man. In other words, capital punishment. You are to govern yourselves, and if someone kills another person... That person is to die. Now, regardless of how a state or a country has legislated this, it doesn't change the fact that this is what God instituted for killing someone, for murder. A life for a life. And notice that he gives the reason why. Because every single person is created in the image and likeness of God. People are significant. Every single person is special. Every single person is a special creation of God. And if we look at people other than a special creation of God, we have violated the conscience given to us and the directive given to us when we want to take their life in our hands and end it. God said, no, that's personal. I created that person, not you. You don't have judgment over them. I do. And so notice it gets personal. Now, here's what's interesting. When that takes place, it is now the responsibility of a people or a society, a government, 
to uphold that wrongful death by putting the one who caused it to death. Now, we're not talking about accidental things. You can read in the law and you can see that later. But we're talking about a situation like, I don't know, Cain and Abel, something like that. That's how serious God takes these things. And notice how he shores this up at the end here. Verse 7, as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Populate the earth. Everybody see that? Populate where? Not just the state of Wisconsin. The earth. Populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. What are the requirements here for conscience? Well, the requirements that you have here, capital punishment is instituted. If you want to write down the eating of meat, it's not that you're required to eat of meat, but God loves it if you do. I didn't get an amen out of that. Good grief. Come on. How many people? Raise your, okay, stop. We need to have a serious conversation. Raise your hand if you don't like meat. Really? Okay, you're on my prayer list. What? Yeah, we love you anyway. Okay. See, this is a godly thing. We're all obeying our consciences in the way of good for this end. Man, you guys are asleep this morning. This is going to be terrible. Gosh, all right, move on. I'm sorry. I won't stop it anymore. So now here's the issue. Multiply, fill the earth. That's the command. That's the command. Repopulate. In light of the judgment that's going on and the grace that was shown to Noah and his family, now set out and repopulate the earth. Turn over to chapter 11. How long does the dispensation of civil government last? Well, it lasts from 9, 10, 11 to the end of 11. Really doesn't seem like much time except you go through and you check out these generations. There was a lot going on there. But we got a major snag and this issue, and, and you're probably familiar with this passage. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. And it came about as they journeyed east, that they found a plain in the land of Shiner and settled there. They stopped. Where did God say go? Fill up the earth. You can live someplace, but start having kids and send them out. Fill up the entire earth. Verse 3, they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. They said, Come. Now everybody watch. The thoughts and intents of the heart is only evil continually. Watch this. Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Let's stop. Let's be somebody. And let's not do what God said. Does everybody see, lest we be scattered over the face of the earth? Were these people ignorant of what God told Noah? Not at all. In fact, this is direct defiance. It's one thing when a child messes up. But let me ask you this. Is it a whole other world when they're defiant to you? Oh my gosh, you could scramble eggs on my neck when that goes down. <laughs> right? You just want to explode. Why is that? Because it's not that they don't know what's right. They're just not going to do it. 
Thereby see God's heart of why he would be grieving in this situation. God is way more personal. Sometimes we might think of him as just like a mystic robot in the sky. Man, that's not him. He is intimately involved, more than we're probably comfortable with if we stop to think about it. If we stop to think about it, we probably all have personal revival right here and now. But he is intimately involved in every one of our lives, and he's looking in on this situation. God said, be scattered. We're not going to do that. Let's stop here. Let's continue. Verse 5, the Lord came down, which is an interesting phrase because he's everywhere present. In other words, he paid close attention. In fact, I'll, I'll tell you this. I believe that the idea when Moses wrote this down, the Lord came down, I think he put that in t- that type of language so that we could try to wrap our minds around it. Is the idea that the Lord is now focused in solely on this situation. Not that he doesn't know everything else that's going on. But man, that type of heart response to God's command got his attention in a bad way. So watch what happens here. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. The Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Now, you might say, Oh, so as long as we all just stick together, we can do anything. Everybody notice amazing push towards globalism? Let me say something about that without being too political. We never see that the push for globalism is for God's righteous reasons to be upheld, do we? No. And I think that's something for us to recognize and be keenly aware of. Somehow we've bought into this ideology that there are some places where God just isn't in society. How many of you were told growing up, well, when you come to the dinner table, you don't talk about politics and religion? Been told about that? Here's the thing I love is that Jesus isn't a religion, he's a relationship. So you can talk about him all you want at the dinner table, right? That's how you snake around that one. But here's the thing. What part of our existence, whether it be on earth, whether it be the Milky Way galaxy, I don't care. What part of our planet and all of existence is not to come under the reign of Jesus Christ? Any of it? Is Mars exempt? No. All of it. All of it is to be under his righteous rule. So when we somehow stake out an area of our life, we've compartmentalized a facet of where we're involved. Maybe it's your work. Maybe it's your relationship with your spouse. Maybe it's your relationship with your kids. Maybe it's your friends you hang out with. Maybe, well, I'm on vacation so I can vacation from being a Christian too compartmentalization doesn't work. It's just a way to excuse sin. It's no different here. It is, and we're real good in our society about being passive aggressive, aren't we? You know, I don't know, I don't think you are, but I am. Man, I'm real good at it. We are trained well in sin. You can't just compartmentalize something of your life and say, well, Jesus doesn't need to be there well he wouldn't have a better way to handle this well his thoughts and opinions about this area of my life are just pretty insignificant i think we got other people that i could read that would be more knowledgeable in this we are crazy people and so in dealing with that that makes us think about the exposure they had to the word coming down from noah do you think they were ignorant of the flood see here's what's amazing they know 
what God is capable of doing. And it was done just a few so many years before their existence. God can judge the world like that. Guys, we don't want that. I don't want that. Sadly, these people want that. And what overcame their vision, their sobriety of their situation? Same thing that does ours. It's called pride. Pride. P-R-I-D-E. It is our most favorite but unspoken word in the English language. Pride. So now the Lord comes down. He wants to look at it all. There's nothing too hard for them. Nothing will be impossible for them. That doesn't mean they're going to be able to do anything. It means that the extents of their sin is going to be catastrophic, incredible. If they keep going at this pace, they're going to send themselves into another flood had he not promised not to do it that way again. Interesting. They're just going to keep running headlong into judgment. So now look what happens. Verse 7, come, let us go down and there confuse their language. Notice the plural pronouns there, us, speaking of the Trinity. Here's the reason, so that they will not understand one another's speech. So Yahweh scattered them from abroad. He'll get you where he wants you one way or another. He said, fill the earth. I don't want to go. You're going. I love it. There he goes. Scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth. And they stopped building the city. Isn't it interesting? It was first being approached and and conceived, talked about. Everybody's real psyched about it. It's like a pep rally. This is going to be a monument. We're going to make a name to ourselves. As soon as they started walking away, it became a relic. Interesting. A tragedy in history to be remembered. Therefore, the name was called Babel. Because there the Lord confused their languages of the whole earth. And from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. What was the judgment in this situation? It was confusing their languages and spreading them out. God judged them. Their disobedience was staying put, not obeying God to go multiply and fill the earth. The judgment is, I'm going to confuse your languages and you will spread out. Where is his grace? He didn't kill them. A lot of times, God's grace is that he just didn't bring death when we most deserved it. I mean, that is what grace is, right? It's the exact opposite of what we deserve. We went over this verse not too long ago, but I want to bring it back to your attention. Number one, does human government work to govern man? It does not. Take your Bibles. Turn with me to Jeremiah 17 real quick. I just want to look at this. You're familiar with this passage. We've gone over it once before. Jeremiah 17. Verse 5 through 10. And if you are looking for a passage to meditate on throughout the week, some of you got different styles of how you do that. Maybe some of you are just verse by verse progressing your way through a book. I encourage you to stop that just for a week and come to the same passage every day. Go over it and over it and over it. If it seems stale to you, pray and confess sin. Go over it again. Maybe find a different translation so you're getting a little bit different flavor of it, but it's the same truth going on. This is a highly impactful passage that will really help cultivate a lot of humility in us. And as we're seeing that these stewardships, these requirements that God puts in the hands of people that, man, we just end up failing back and forth over and over again. If we were there, we would have committed the same type of atrocities, those types of things. Number one, it further exemplifies the glory of God, his grace in the whole situation. But I think what else is interesting is that it reveals something incredible about ourselves. Verse 5, thus says Yahweh, cursed is the man who trusts 
in mankind. Pay attention to that. Fastest growing religion in our society. It's actually two of them. Democrats and Republicans. It's fastest growing religions. You say, how dare you? I love Trump. Well, that's okay. But don't tell me it's not a religion. Don't tell me we would step forward in ways that are godless and then call it right. That's a religion. In fact, most times that's called a cult. So that's not the people of God. Now, am I coming down on you for how you vote? No. I'm saying be the in Christ person that you are and let everything else flow out of that. That's your identity. Not a donkey. Not an elephant. Not an orange guy with orange hair. Not crazy people who raise lots of money and you wonder how they got it because they don't make that much in Congress. I digress. (laughs) All of your minds just went... Wow. Okay. Thus the Lord said, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength and whose heart... Get this, where's the problem? The problem is always the heart. Whose heart turns away from the Lord. For he will be like a bush in the desert and will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitants. Anybody ever fed your plant salt? It's not a good time. It doesn't end well. I've never done that, I promise. But still. But notice, you will continue parched because you've turned away from the avenue of nourishment that God freely gives. He says here, verse 7, thank goodness for the positive end. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. Everybody see that's double? Not only is your trust in the Lord, your trust is the Lord. Why? Because truth is not a thing, concept, idea, philosophy, whatever. Truth is a person. And is the person of God Almighty manifested in the incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. It's a person. So you want to be blessed? Trust in God. Let him be your trust. Let him be that for you. Verse 4, for he will be like a tree planted by water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green and it will not be anxious in a year of drought, nor cease to yield fruit. And it's so crazy how he just changes to this one point here that we've got to grab onto, verse 9, get it. The heart is more deceitful than all else if you don't believe that this morning you need to get saved am i saying that you're going to hell i'm not saying that i'm saying you're not thinking correctly about yourself because jesus christ as savior becomes less esteemed the more that we are self-esteeming ourselves now let me go ahead and break some some hopes and dreams and hallmark cards that some of you may hold dear self-esteem is never mentioned in the bible In fact, self-esteem in the Bible is manifested by one word. Pride. See, you guys know this. We know this, and yet don't we still fall in these traps of following our heart into silly things away from the Lord? We are such a needy people. I need thee every... Let's change it. No, let's change it. Second. I need thee every second. Most gracious Lord. Why? Because my heart is deceitful amongst all else. Look what he says here. It is desperately sick. More than NyQuil, people. More than NyQuil. 
It's desperately sick. Who can understand it? Now this is a prophet of God writing. Who has seen things and knows things and has said things that we could only dream and imagine that we could do. But when there's an assessment through the prophet of the heart, it is beyond figuring out. Verse 10, let it sit in. I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. You know why that is a reap and sow mentality there? Because we know the difference. We are with knowledge of right and wrong. I'm done. But my question to you is, where's your heart? Did you come to church this morning sensitive to the Lord in His leading? Do you understand what the requirement is right now that's been given to the church? We haven't hit it yet, but it's obvious. And are you playing a part in there? Are you yielding when your conscience is saying, don't do that, don't touch that, don't look at that, don't listen to that, don't say that, don't go there? That's not just the boogeyman creeping up on you. That is the Holy Spirit saying, do you not understand you are my beloved child and I am trying to care for you? Stop smacking my hands away. Does this resonate? I hope it does. Pray. Father in heaven, I think about David who prayed a very dangerous prayer. And he asked of you, search me, O God. Try me. See if there is any wicked way in me. We are graciously saved. Jesus is our all in all. He is our rescuer. He is our deliverer. He is your grace towards us. He is love demonstrated in his death. You love your kids. Thank you, God, for loving us. I pray, Lord, that we are acutely aware of our heart's condition before you now. Are we harboring sin? Are we bitter? Are we unforgiving? Do we have a haughty spirit? Are we a gossip? Are we liars? Are we filled with anger? Do we lack self-control? Are we self-righteous? Have we set up our lives in such a way as to where we try to keep you out of certain parts? because we know that it would cost us sin that we love so much. Father, I ask that you search our hearts, search the hearts of this church. Try us. Test us to see if there is any wicked way within us. Father, if we seek to hold on to our sin, whether it be sin we've committed or the unforgiveness we want to hold against people who have sinned against us. Make us restless. Disturb us to no end until we obey and we confess before you that wrong. You desire intimacy. You desire fellowship. You desire closeness. You desire for us to heed your words when they speak to us through your holy word. You desire for our lives to be changed. You have a plan to conform us to the image of Christ. You have already laid out good works for us to walk in. Sometimes we're so busy we forget 
that you're there. Father, minister to our hearts today. We pray it in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.